animals that are not clean, a male and a female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky in order to keep, in order to keep offering alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will wipe out off the face of the earth. And Noah did everything that the Lord had commanded him. It says, Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood came and the water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. From the animals that are clean and from the animals that are not clean and from the birds of every creature that crawled on the earth, two of each, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the floodwaters came on the earth. Now, you notice here what happened? Just pause, and this is part of the discussion in Life Group and one of those things that we're talking about, a God event. Did Noah put on his safari hat and go hunting for critters? No, they came to him. Keep on going. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of that month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery deep, or depths, burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah, along with his sons, Shem, Hem, and Japheth, entered the ark along with Noah's wife and his three sons' wives. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kind. Kind is important. Now just pause for a second as we talk about this, as we mention the issue of kind. So, who here has a dog? Wave your hand at me if you got a dog. Okay, you own a dog. It is a, is it a Maltese poodle? If it's a Maltese, keep your hand in the air. If you got a dog, keep your hand in the air. If it's a Maltese poodle, put your hand down. Okay, so you all have the same. Keep, do you have a, keep your hand up if it's not a Maltese poodle. Okay, so if your hand is up, you still have the same kind I do. It's just not a Maltese poodle. You can put your hand down. So, when we talk about kind, we're talking about dog kind. We're not talking about, there's two bulldogs, two Maltese, two poodles, two chihuahuas, two schnauzers, two great danes, two doberman pincers, two german shepherds. We're not talking about that. We're talking two kind. Two of the dog kind. Now when you start to talk about kind as to one of every type of breakdown of the kind, your, your volume starts to get small. Okay? So, I don't know how many pigeon kinds there are, but there's a bunch. Two pigeons. Two dirty birds. Okay? Or actually seven. Because seven of the, of the flying things. So as you start to wrestle through that, when you start to think about all these critters that are coming to the ark, two of each kind. Keep on going. Those that entered, male and female, every creature entered as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. I'm at the end of verse 16, now going on to verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. 
the water surged and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. So, Mount Everest, the tippy-tippy top, 20 feet underwater, according to the biblical account. Now that's if it's still, if it's that high yet. We'll talk about that in a minute. Everything 20 feet underwater. Every creature perished. Those that crawled on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and all that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of life, breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. And the water surged on the earth a hundred and fifty days. We get to chapter 8 and it says, God remembered Noah. Now, it doesn't mean that God went off after some time between day 80 and day 150. God decided to go on vacation. He decided to go visit a few planets and he was out there sightseeing in a drama. And going, oh, oh yeah, I forgot about Noah. I better get back and see what's going on. That's really not what we're talking about, okay? So, it's just saying he was taking him under consideration. He was watching him, thinking about him. So Noah remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain and the rain fell from the sky rain from the sky stopped the water steadily receded from the earth and by the end of 150 days the water had decreased significantly the ark came to rest in the 7th month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat The water continued to recede until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window of the ark, but the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it it into the ark to himself. So Noah waited seven days and sent out the dove from the, from the ark again. When the dove came back to him at evening, there was, a, uh, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. After he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. In the 600th year, in the first month of the, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. And then we come to this promise. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they, were, and they will spread over the earth to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with all of his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again cause the ground to become, cause the ground because of human beings. I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike him, strike down every living thing as I have done, as long as the earth endures. Sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. So we read this account, and there's a number of things that stand out that I kind of want to talk about. First of all, and you see this in your notes, the flood event is a huge God event. It's a huge God event. God is doing some amazing, some crazy things through this event. Let's start with what we talked about a few moments ago. God collected all of the kinds. Noah, as I said, didn't go out in a safari outfit. He didn't hire safari people. They didn't go out with with boxes and cages or, or herding critters around. God sent them every critter to be saved. Now think about it for a second. How many rocks do you have to turn over to find some of the critters that need to be saved? You ever think about that? You have to turn some dirt to find some of the critters that need to be saved. But God sent them everything that needed to be saved, two of every kind. That's a huge deal. Noah, this is a big task. I'm taking it off your plate. You build the ark, you create the space. I'll take this particular detail off your plate. I'll I'll manage this. Don't worry about it. You worry about it over here. Now, 17, chapter 6, verse 7, verse 16, we read this. And, I, and again, I want to come back to this because this stands out to me. Then he then Those that entered, male and female, every creature entered as God had commanded him. It says, then the Lord shut him in. God shut, not yet. Go back to that verse and keep it there, please. God shut the door. Now, what's interesting is this question. Where was the door in the ark? Was it high? Or was it low? I don't know because I haven't seen the ark. (laughs) But here's what's interesting to me. So if you go to the ark encounter out in Kentucky, and you'll look at that, and you will see that they have the ark door, and it's high. So, and, and what they have then is they have this ramp system built in front of it so that critters can walk along and come up and go into the ark or so that people can go in and out of the ark while it's standing there. Now that kind of makes sense. But if you're two stories up or three stories up, when everything dries... How do you get out? 
You know, push, push. The birds get out easy. I think the elephants are going to have a hard time. What strikes me is that in this whole process, in this whole deal, if the door was low, God sealed it, it didn't work. If the door is high, God also sealed it so it wouldn't leak, but then God also allowed them to land in a spot so they can disembark. I don't know, maybe you don't think that way, but as I'm processing, I think that's like a God event, a God thing, because they're going to have to figure out how to get everyone out. And he says, okay, everyone out. And they got out. It'd be a month building that thing with, with nothing. All the cranes, all the lifts, all the tools, all the resources that they had been using for the previous hundred years are buried somewhere. I just think that's kind of cool. God preserved their lives in the raging seas. He preserved their lives in the raging seas. Now when you go back and you look at this and you look at the dimensions of the ark... I was listening to a video and the guy says, I was showing this to some engineers and one of the engineers he said, oh, that's credible. It's totally credible. And the reason he says, talking about the ark, it's totally credible is because the dimensions of the ark are very similar to the kinds of dimensions that cargo ships are built with today. Because it gives the, the space, the volume, the water stability. But one of the arguments on that whole conversation is it's really tough to have a wooden boat built that way that would sustain and hold up. Now if you go to Ark Encounter or if you look at the answers in Genesis or Answers TV, you're going to see some of the conversation. And so the Greeks apparently did some very good shipbuilding. So a lot of the... So, have you ever, any of you ever gone up to like the Boston Harbor or some of those areas and you've seen some of those ships, like the Nina the Pinta and the Santa Maria that they sailed across the country? Aren't those huge? They're dinky. I mean, I don't think they're as long as our auditorium. When you start to think about the size of these ships, they're really kind of small. Then they're, and the way that they're built, you know, they say make it tight because you're putting caulk and that kind of stuff between the boards and you put it in the water, the board swell, the caulk swells and, you know, it gets all kind of stiff and fat. But when you have waves and you bang and boom and all that kind of stuff and you're, you know, that stuff moves and it wiggles and stuff starts to come loose. But if you built it somewhat like some of the Greeks did in their construction, where you would have multi-hull construction, you would have wafers that you kind of put in there that would hold things together. Then you have another bulkhead behind it going a different direction. Then you take dowels and you hit it all together. And in the water, you get, you get that stuff in the water, and all of a sudden it tight, expands, it tightens up. But here's what's interesting. Crazy catastrophic, seismic events going on in the world. Tidal waves like crazy. God preserved them. God protected them. And they settled on Mount Ararat and were able to get out all in one piece. They didn't sink.
during this event, God unleashed huge cataclysmic events that reshaped the world. We're going to touch on that a little bit in a moment more. General theory, as you listen to people, and you also, when you look at the creation account, what did God do? He collected all the land in one place and all the water in another place. So he separated the two, but put them two together. So he had a bunch of land, and then he had all the rest water. You listen to people talk about stuff, and they talk about the jigsaw puzzle of the continents. They've come up with this term called Pangea that would talk about that unified continent of the world. And the people that talk about this stuff are talking about the fact that it's obvious that the continents, all the continents at one point in time had been all together. My suggestion to you is that during the flood process and beginning of the flood process, all of that started to separate. So you're talking about major cataclysmic events taking place. And in the midst of all of that, God is reshaping the face of the planet. A huge God event. We're going to talk more about that in a few minutes. Now, I, I like this one. God allowed the ark to settle away. That allowed them to continue to live and allowed them to disembark. floating along and all of a sudden the, the tip or the back hits something can you imagine waters recede and you have this all of a sudden it's doing a tumble God allowed the ark to settle so that they could, could continue to live they lived that way for months as the ark settled as the water dried they lived that way for months and also in a way that they could disembark can you imagine have the ark settle like this the doors up here who's getting out nobody the rhinos aren't getting out the dinosaurs aren't getting out the elephants aren't getting out you're just going to have a whole big pile of mush in the bottom God allowed the ark to settle. Now, you might look at that and say, that's not a big deal. I'm just thinking in a whole big scope of things. I think it's pretty cool because God is superintending, watching over the whole process. Now, just got to say this. and You probably see it in the notes. In comparison, God's intervention in the flood is nothing compared to his creation effort. God has just taken a little bit of time to focus on some little stuff just here on the planet Earth. We're not talking about the whole, first of all, making stuff out of nothing and then spreading it all across the galaxy and making everything in the universe. He's just given some specific focused effort, attention, and time to what's happening during the flood. I think it's pretty cool. Now, let's go to point two. I would suggest to you that a cataclysmic flood event explains continental separation, the fossil record, the ice age, 
and various other things. Let's go to Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Now here's one of the things that strikes me. God does not make a presentation that's a scientific dissertation. He just gives a narrative explanation, very dancing across the top, makes a couple statements, and keeps on going. So you would think the cataclysmic events of the flood maybe would be a book or two. It's a few chapters. A few thousand words. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, My suggestion to you, we talked about Pangea a moment ago, how all the world is kind of together. You're talking about a major cataclysmic event. And you're talking about a separation and a reshaping of the surface of our planet in less than a two-month period of time. So you're talking about a continent, North America, South America, moving away from Europe and Africa and moving thousands of miles in 30 days. You're talking about the continent of the, the continents of North and South America shifting and moving toward Asia. Australia. You're talking about Australia shifting. You're talking about other components of the continental shift and movement. All within a probably a 30-day window of time. Why? Because it says the fountains of the deep broke open. Now this is important. Because you have to ask the question, where does all the rain come from? And where does all the water come from? So as you ask questions about all the rain, part of what was happening is there is seismic activity going on globally. You have eruptions of volcanoes and all this hot water. You have all of this crazy steam going up into the atmosphere. You have the, the, the vapor barrier that was there now being compounded with all of the steam and all the vapor from all that's taking place all around the world, from all of this continental shift, all this continental movement, and all this volcanic activity that is going on. And that's what drives all that moisture into the air. What produces all of that rain. Also what happens at that point in time, that's also part of what moves and shifts the bottoms of the oceans and brings land up because now things are moving and things are buckling. Things are being pushed up up and open because what's happening here in all of this process is you're not just talking about all of the rain coming down because it's all just the rain falling. You're asking, well, what happened to all of the water now? You also have the ocean levels come up. A number of months ago, we talked about the typical depths of the ocean. We talked about how the typical depths of the ocean was about a mile deep. I think I 
Remember that conversation. So when you start to move all of that up and bring that up, it radically moves water all over the earth. The fossil record. You look at the fossil record and the evolutionist is going to say this represents the process of evolution. The creationist and the person who would believe in the flood process would say, no, this represents the the progression of movement in the flood process. So the first things to get covered and buried are the marine animals. The next level of things, small, scurrying, they get covered. And then the next, and then the next, and then the next. And at the top layer you have all of the various animals and the dinosaurs and that kind of stuff. Why? Because they are running for the hills. But what do you have during the beginning of that flood process? You have tidal waves, inundation of flood, tidal waves, inundation of flood, waters rising, critters and people and stuff being pushed to the higher ground until eventually it gets covered. And all of that swirl of movement. You also have volcanoes going off, ash dropping. Now here's what's interesting. Every layer, every layer has aquatic fossils. Every single layer of the fossil record has aquatic fossils. Every single layer. That's identifying that there's water and there's aquatic stuff going on. There's water present in the laying down of the sediment. Here's another interesting component. If the conventional idea of evolution is that there was a layer, stuff is there. By the way, fossils... The way the fossils happen, they happen because there's a rapid covering of the animals and the rapid entrapment of the animals under dirt and then pressure. That's the important process of the fossilization. You don't have something that's rotting, it decays, and then it becomes a fossil. It needs to be buried for the fossilization process to take place. So there needs to be significant movement of earth, water, dirt, all of that kind of stuff to cover over these various things that are, that are becoming fossils. And again, you have aquatic fossils up in the Himalayas. You have aquatic fossils in the mountains all around our world. How did that get there? Except with flooding. Major significant flooding around our world. Now you look at the the strata of stone. Now, if in the conventional method, in the conventional idea, this strata was laid, hardened, and then there's another layer, a few million years later, later, and then there's another layer a few million years later, and then there's another layer a few million years later, and then there's another layer a few million years later, and that's how the process goes. When the move ground shifts, you would expect to see these layers do this. 
You'd expect to see those layers of dirt and those layers of strata shift and break. But often, you know what you see? You see those shifting layers of data, of, of, of strata, and you don't see this. You see like this. They stay contiguous together. And you see this weaviness and this w- movement that's evidence not of fixed stone that breaks, but rather this evidence of unsettled dirt, fluid, still not compacted dirt that is still able to move and flex as the ground and the substrata shifts and moves. And so you're seeing movement in strata. But it stays continuous instead of breaking. Multiple layers. Here's another one. You look at the fossil record and the whole conversation of evolution talks about how this one progression to the next. But when you look at the fossil records, you look at all of that kind of stuff, what you don't see is you don't see gradual progression from one piece to the next. In fact, what you see is you look at some of the fossil record is you see some of the same critters and fauna there that we have today in, every, in all categories. The same critters. The same fauna. A cataclysmic flood event can explain the Grand Canyon and other events like that. People would look at that and say, no, that's the Colorado River slowly and gradually wearing it away over millions and millions and millions and millions of years. Look at the data from the eruption of Mount St. Helens. There's a mini Grand Canyon area up near Mount St. Helens. And what they've recognized is that the flow of the Grand Canyon wreck is, kind of represents a rapid flood event or, or, or the water rushing out. It's pretty common knowledge that in the center of the United States, in the center of that area, there was a big, big, big lake or small sea. And so when you look at the water flowing out of the Grand Canyon, it would represent the emptying of that lake and the traumatic flood event erosion event from something like that taking place. And when you look at what happened in Mount St. Helens, you see a number of things. You see the creation of strata and gullies and all the runoffs look similar to the Grand Canyon up near Mount St. Helens because of the flood from the waters and the lake that drained and all of that kind of stuff. It became a little microcosm to look at and to examine and realize that all of the different stratas were put down. New canyon systems were established in a, in a very, very, very quick cataclysmic event. Local, but very quick. Now, I'll just go over, over this. So I was watched. I watched some resources. I have the, I have one of them on on the bottom of the page. 
Let me just kind of read through some of the conclusions. I tried to figure out how to, it's about a three minute clip that I wanted to try to feed in, into our sermon and put on the screen, but I couldn't figure out how to get it in there. Yet I didn't know how to kind of rip that little bit out. So let me just kind of walk through and kind of hit some of the conclusions that he identified. Conventional, slow, and gradual plate tectonics cannot explain how the ocean waters flooded over all of the continents and deposited sediments burying marine fossils and layers that stretch right across the continents, even high in today's mountains. The conventional theory that there was only regional flooding does not explain the fossil record. It doesn't explain it. Two. All flood models but one, which would be the the Noah flood model, cannot explain how the enormous vertical and horizontal earth movements during the flood occurred miles and thousands of miles respectively as a supercontinent broke apart and separated in today's continents. It doesn't explain it. Because part of what doesn't explain, it doesn't explain the new, new bottom to the ocean. So, between the United States and Europe, all new bottom of ocean. Why? Because of the, as that separated, as that ripped, as that rift was taking place, you're talking about magma coming up and filling in that new, and filling all that in, and, and coming up, and hot. Then there's a cool that drops. Number three. Only catastrophic plate tectonics explains far more real-world observations dealing with the big-picture evidence for the flood. Okay, so again, all of the, you see how the world moved? You, you talk about the different places where similar kind of rocks and formations are on different continents, and yet it's the same rock stuff. You do tests on places in America, and it matches the stuff in Europe. You, but you don't have the mountains coming together, crashing together to create mountains like the Himalayas. One of the interesting things, the inevitable consequence of a pre-flood cold, dense ocean floor or the crust surrounding supercontinental and floating on the warm surface of the upper mantle. He took, this is all technical stuff. But they do the research, they do the, the reading of that stuff, and it doesn't explain the cold portions of subcontinental strata. It doesn't explain it. The, con- the conventional theory where a, str- a, ma- a major flood and moving of things explains it. I can keep on going. Bottom line is, is this, and I would encourage you to go to that video and listen to it. There's all sorts of scientific evidence to identify the flood. Now here's the challenge. Do you ever have a conversation with somebody and they just disagree with you? I had this conversation a little bit this morning. But you say up, they say down. You go right, they say left. You say we should go in, they say we should go out. We're just going to disagree. And that's part of the reality of our world right now. And so we look at the flood events, we look at all that kind of stuff, we look at the, the general introduction of the flood conversation, and our world response is, nope. 
Dismiss, disregard. I want to suggest to you that and we won't go through all of this and we won't hit all of this stuff today. There is significant scientific support for the flood. The problem is people come to that significant scientific support for the flood and they dismiss it because their preconceived notions are that they don't agree, they don't believe, therefore they dismiss it. Because they've been pre determined, they, had, they have predetermined not to believe something instead of being willing to take an open perspective as they look at the evidence that exists. There's all sorts of evidence for the flood to take place. All sorts of evidence. It even supports the whole idea of an ice age. Because as you have major catastrophic world events, the eruption of volcanoes, you have all of the moisture in the air, but now you also have all of the smog and all of the smoke and all of the debris from volcanoes that leads to the cooling component, but you still have the hot oceans that still feeds the snow process. So even that explains it and walks it through. And you can see the reasons and how all of that fits with the flood process. I would encourage you to look at Answers in Genesis. There's some great resources there. And I would encourage you as you interact with people, point them in that direction. Because there's great evidence that the flood is an accurate accounting of the events that took place. One more piece that I want to look at this morning. And that would be the flood, the, the promise. God makes a promise. Verses 15 to 22 of chapter 8. Then God spoke to Noah, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, your sons, wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth. And they spread out over the earth and, be, and to be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, his sons, his wives, came out, all the animals, all the creatures that crawl on the ground, all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. Excuse me. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the heart is evil from youth onward. And God made a promise. He was not going to destroy the earth like this again. Even though the inclination of our heart is evil always. Now it was this very issue that drove him to initiate the flood. And yet he chose and he promised afterward that he would not destroy us like that again. I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. We need to come back and we rest in the promises of God. 
Now we read about how everything is going to end and we can go to Revelation and those kinds of places and read how things are going to come to a conclusion. But we can rest in the promises of God. He is not going to address and resolve things through, that, through another flood again. He's not going to do it. And we're going to look next week about the covenant that God makes with Noah and the giving of the rainbow as that part of that promise and part of the evidence of that promise. I find some hope in this. I actually find a lot of hope in this. God initiated a response. And we're going to see this soon after the flood. We're going to, if, we were to, if we were to continue to go through Genesis, we would very quickly, at the end of the Tower of Babel, we would find God establishing a covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant with Abraham, God says, I'm going, through, through you, all mankind is going to be blessed. And we see the beginning of the promise of the sending of the Redeemer. And God's solution from this point forward is not based upon a judgment per se, but God's solution moving forward is to send a Redeemer is to send a solution so that we can deal with the wickedness of heart that exists in every single one of us. The seeds of hope. And I would encourage you to hold on to that. Now we look backwards and we see, we can kind of follow the weave of the, of the process of the promises of God. It's always easier to look backwards and see and connect all the dots. It's tougher to look forward and and try to understand how all the dots are going to fit together and how all the pieces are going to happen. But we look backward over these last years and we see the flowing of the events and how God slowly revealed himself and how God showed the coming of the promised one who would be our redeemer, who would deal with that wickedness of heart and would deal with the inclinations of our heart to be alienated and to run from God. Who, because why? We are inclined to say when God says up, we're inclined to say down. When God says left, we're inclined to say right. When God says no, we're inclined to say yes. When God says no, we are inclined to say, I want something else. But he's given us Jesus. And Jesus deals with the heart stuff. Jesus deals with the attitude stuff. Jesus deals with those things that we are naturally inclined to be resistant to God. And God transforms us from the inside out. And I'm grateful for that. Because I think that directly is part of that promise that I'm not going to bring this kind of judgment again. He's going to deal with us differently. And for that, I'm incredibly grateful. Now, as we started talking about this series, we talked about part of the reason is laying down foundations. Part of what I want you to understand as our world is inundating us with perspectives and ideas, answers and solutions to how everything came into place, where it started, how it got shaped, and how it got formed. 
Part of the value of walking through this is we are being reminded of the events that took place from the biblical account. Now my answer to that also would be then we're being reminded of what actually really took place. But I also want to remind you that as we would say we are being reminded of what actually really took place, there is also science and evidence and tools and resources at our disposal to help us to answer and to respond to those who say, I'm not sure I agree with you. We're not just taking a step of faith because there's no evidence and we're just going to step out into no man's land. We're taking a step of faith. God has given us a narrative account. He has not given us a scientific dissertation. God has given us a narrative event and a narrative account of the things that took place. But there is significant evidence to suggest and to identify and to argue that the events that are described in the Genesis account are absolutely accurate and are absolutely the things that took place. Now again, one of those resources I would suggest to you is Answers in Genesis or Answers TV, which is the uh, creation science or, or the resource. I would encourage you to go to the Ark Encounter. You get a little vacation time, drive out there and, 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 and spend a couple days walking through the Ark Encounter. Now here's one of the things that's cool. You'll enjoy a break. You're going to get some exercise. Not crazy exercise, but you're going to walk around and, and see stuff. But you're also going to walk away and you're going to see stuff and be exposed to stuff that's going to sharpen your thinking. It's going to sharpen your mind. It's going to feed your spirit and your mind as well as be something that's going to refresh your spirit. I'd encourage you to take advantage of the opportunities. Today we have opportunities and we have resources that are at our disposal that weren't at our disposal 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 100 years ago. Take advantage of those resources. Tap into those resources. And it's going to feed your spirit. It's going to help you to understand. So as you have a conversation, you sit down to discuss these issues with somebody. You can't just, you're, you're, you, you can now say more as well, I just believe. You can say, I believe, but this is also evidence that I see and resources that I can point to that help to bolster and explain and help me to put the pieces together as to how it happened in a logical, scientific, reasonable manner. Take advantage of those resources that are available to you. Now I'm going to close in a word of prayer and those that are going to help us with the offering are going to come from the back to the front. Music team is going to come up and... We're going to draw our time to a close. But keep thinking, keep processing this stuff, and keep wrestling through the promises of God. Let's pray together.